I'm Barry Morgenstern, Managing Partner of Tarkus Capital Advisors, and this is Under the Term Sheets, the podcast for specialty finance deal junkies. My guest deal junkie today is Alan Snyder, who's the Managing Partner of Shinnecock Partners and Art Lending Fund. Alan, welcome. Thank you, Barry. It's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting a scallywag like me. <laughs> We're always trying to upgrade the guest on the program, so I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, well, listen, let's maybe dive into uh, our discussion here and maybe start with uh, a little bit about your background story. Sure. You know, I, as I thought about your question, you know, we're all prisoners of our past and my past certainly has shaped me. Uh, I'll give you a fact I don't think you know about me, Barry. My parents died when I was 18 and plus their terrible planning, I went from super comfortable to not. And I'm sure that made me somewhat risk adverse. Uh, as a result of going from comfort to basically being broke when I was 18. But one f more fun story is when I was at Georgetown, Bill Clinton was there at the same time I was, and we were having a beer one day, and Bill said to me, you know, Snyder, you're as smart as I am, and I'm getting a Rhodes Scholarship. You should apply for one. And I said, Bill, it sounds good, but what do you have to do to get it? Well, you need some people to support you that are important. And I said, well, I don't got it, Bill. He <laughs> said, well, then forget it. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> and so I learned from that, if it's going to be, it's up to me. Uh, clearly, if you look at my more formal background, I can't hold a job. I got an <laughs> MBA from that uh, Eastern Trade School, which allowed me to go to Wall Street and then on Wall Street knowing I was not a really good corporate citizen, I learned that I had to innovate or perish. So I built a whole raft of different businesses. And then, no accounting for taste, eventually I became on the board and uh, was running pretty much all the product areas of a firm that became Morgan Stanley. Uh, after Dean Witter bought Morgan Stanley, my swan song there was starting the Discover card. And then it was no fun, so I quit. <laughs> and uh, went off, came eventually out to California to spend seven years in the penalty box restructuring a $20 billion insurance company, sold it, founded an internet business, which grew from one person to 800, and eventually sold that to uh, ultimately was bought by Allstate. And uh, I left out truncated since I'm old and crotchety, just asked my wife. Um, I've tried to make it brief. <laughs> I can't imagine how you'd have ended up if you had come from a family of means. Yeah, I know. It's hard to imagine looking at a <laughs> slug like me, but uh, I got lucky. <laughs> That's great, Alan. So let's talk about why you decided to start, start Shinnecock and obviously how that led to founding Art Lending Fund. Well, after a bunch of years on Wall Street, I had a few pennies. And when I quit, <laughs> you're going to laugh, I woke up and said, well, I know Wall Street never met a fee they didn't like and were casual about risk because as a young punk, <laughs> I embodied both of those. So I said I had a few pennies. So I figured I better not be casual about it. So I started Shinnecock 
is a micro-size family office investment boutique and created kind of an all-weather fund. That was 32 long years ago, and that fund has motored through many (laughs) challenges, but has done fine. So that was the genesis of Shinnecock. Very cool. And a little bit about the market niche for uh, Shinnecock and then Let's delve into Art Lending Fund and sure. how you're approaching that niche. Well, after the Wall Street experience, the insurance company restructuring that portfolio, it made me a passionate believer in niche-based investing. And why? what does that mean? Niche-based investing is really off the beaten path. You know, Nassim Taleb of some fame talks about anti-fragile investing. Niche investing, I believe, embodies that. Niche investing typically has lower correlation to other stuff. That's good. And carefully wrought can generate very steady and attractive returns. Now, that plays into my belief that... uh, Compound returns are the eighth wonder of the world. When you look at, you know, people say, oh, I only, I don't get out of bed unless I earn 25%. That's a fiction. Uh, Just put the pickle on the fork right quick. The average pension investor or endowment, which are generally done better than pensions, earns a compound 6% long term return. So if you can do consistently, Better than that, you've got a home run. And that's our belief. So we do all sorts of stuff at Shinnecock, including about six years ago, we were casting about for yield investments and didn't find too many that were really attractive. And a friend of mine running a multi-billion dollar hedge fund in credit fund in New York said, Snyder, you like niche stuff? I said, yes. He said, we have a $100 million book in fine art loans against museum quality pieces of art, and it's probably attractive to you. So he sent me all the information, and the more we looked, the more we liked it. And the one funny part of that story is, is I told my friend, I said, you know, thank you so much for directing all this material to me but your loan documents aren't any good. And he said, God damn it, Snyder, I gave you this opportunity or shared everything we're doing with it. So when you rewrite the loan documents, I want to set for free. (laughs) Good trade-off. And that was a fair trade. Now, the reason I think lending money against a Picasso, a Bacon, a Rothko is so attractive is You can create a short duration portfolio, giving you flexibility. What we've done is created a portfolio with an average duration of four months, short, great. Warming my black heart particularly is the fact that we take delivery of the collateral. It's in our possession in a bonded art warehouse with to get technical with the UCC1 filed against it. So we're a senior secured creditor attached to the art. So if a borrower were to default, we don't have to chase the collateral. 
compare that, if you will, to lending against equipment, lending against a car, lending against a company. <laughs> or receivables uh, and inventory that you have to liquidate. Yeah, <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty nifty. Now, you would quickly say, Alan, there's more to this than just that, and I would agree. What is the advance rate or how much are we lending against the collateral? Our average loan-to-value ratio is 40%. So there's a lot of room to be wrong. I love that. Over the last 50 years, giving a little extra weight in the balance bar, art has appreciated, high-end art, I should say, has appreciated at a compound 8%. Little less in the last 20 years, maybe five and a half percent, but giving you a little more room than just the 40% LTV. Now, we fast forward, we liked it. We wrote an article, and I have some young guys now at Shinnecock, and I owe them a longer runway in Shinnecock. So we said, all right, we did this white paper on the space and no accounting for taste. It got republished in some places, and we started getting inquiries. Oh, my goodness. So we decided, all right, we'll create a couple of ways to play with this. One through a pooled vehicle, which has some very significant tax advantages associated with it, because we had the luxury of starting with a blank sheet of paper. And three law firms, a bunch of money later, we put it in place. And since we're tough on ourselves of saying no more than 15% to any single borrower, or any single artist, and yet we have some large borrowers with great art. So they say, uh, Alan, I'd like additional loan capacity from you. And we say, well, our pooled vehicle's full. And they say, well, can you raise the money outside of that by doing a sidecar or a co-investment? And we say, yes. So we've done that as well. Put some perspective on it. We've done through this date about I don't know, $110, $115 million of art loans. And I would hasten to note, we have yet to have the first default, but I don't want to be glib. It just means someday we will. But knock on wood, as I hit my head, we haven't had any to date. Of the uh, $100, $115 million you've put out, um, how many loans have repaid, roughly? About fifteen. Percent, maybe 18%. The interesting thing is, and I know you're going to ask me this in a minute, who are our borrowers? Our borrowers generally, and, and they're pretty carefully wrought, our first priority is gallerist dealers. We particularly like them because they will buy a piece of art and expect to hold it for three to five years. Now, I like them as borrowers because in the art business, if you if they were to play too many games with us, they would be kicked out of the art business because if you can't trust the dealer gallerist, you're not going to use them. So they would bet their company on playing too many games. Now, gallerist dealers are attractive, even though we give them a one-year, typically a one-year term loan. And you'd say, Alan, as several banks have told me, they say, Alan, you're dumb. Why don't you give them a five-year term loan if they're going to hold the yard for five years? And I say to my friends that are bankers, are you nuts? 
I'm not making a five-year bet on the value of the art. So what we'll do, Barry, gets to your how many have paid off. We're happy to extend a loan Mm -hmm. if and only if 90 days before the end of the term, we reappraise the art and that it's within the band that we're comfortable with. If it is, we've done all the work on the art, authenticity, provenance, all the underwriting, including on the borrower. So we're happy to extend it because we're getting a very attractive yield. That's one set of borrowers. And occasionally, we'll lend to high net worth collectors. Now, kind of a new news event for us. Bonhams has decided, uh, we must have pulled the wool over their eyes, that they want to use <laughs> us as a lender on behalf of their bidders, whether to bid on a piece of art or provide a guaranteed irrevocable bid. So we're in the process of launching that program with Bonhams. So I believe we'll get additional deal flow as a result from them. Bonhams is the, you know, there are four big auction houses, Christie's, Sotheby's, Phillips, and Bonhams. So we're very lucky to have created that relationship. So in essence, you'll be like their private label uh, lender for the yes, customers. Exactly right. The, uh, and talk a little bit how you get comfortable with the value of these pieces of art. <laughs> it's one thing to be 40% of loan to value, but the key is what's the value, right? What's the D? <laughs> yeah. Very carefully would be the quick answer. <laughs> but a more fun answer is we do what I would call onion underwriting. That's a great term. I've never heard that. What does that mean, Alan? Well, you think about an onion, it's multi-layered. And the key is to keep peeling the layers back. Now, we look at the borrower. We're lending against the art, but we want to do, and we do a background check on borrowers. We're not doing a cash flow loan like a a bank would do. Mm -hmm. Lending against the art, but we want to avoid bad actors to the best of our limited ability. So what do we do? If somebody is highly litigious, and we've turned down a bunch of our loans from people who were wealthy, et cetera, but where they're highly litigious, life is too short, so we'll pass. Second, if a borrower is already in financial distress, distressed borrowers do weird and wonderful things, and we would seek to not play with that borrower. So we do that. Obviously, since we're lending against the collateral, We do intensive analysis of the authenticity and provenance of the art pieces. What does that mean? It means that you want to be sure that the piece of art was done by the named artist and not the school of, let's say, Picasso. So you do that by either talking to the Picasso catalog raisonné which is when they say, aha, that picture of that handsome guy, Barry Morgenstern, that was actually painted by Picasso, and they acknowledge that. Exhibition history is another thing that's important because museums are very picky about what they will exhibit. Third is there are endless art experts, have art experts said, aha, this is a wonderful painting by Picasso. 
So you're doing all of that kind of validation of the art itself. On the pricing, which you alluded to, we looked at two things. Compare it, think about real estate as an alternative. Real estate, what are you doing? You're doing getting appraisals and comparative analysis. In our case, we have the advantage if a piece of art, which often is the case, has been through a major auction. I would argue that's as good a price discovery as you have. It's like a stock market open outcry. Somebody decided to buy the piece of art after sampling the market. And if we lent money against a Rothko, which had been in a private collection for 30 years, so no current auction pricing, there we will get an appraiser that is expert in that genre of art. And we will only use appraisers that are part of one of three major appraisal organizations because those organizations have such strict vetting of their appraisers. So we will get an appraisal of the piece of art. And as I said, typically loan 40% mm-hmm. of either the auction price, if it's recent, or the appraised price. When you say recent auction price, how recent? A year. Okay. A two-year-old appraisal or sale, rather, you'd basically reappraise and reanalyze, I presume. True. But the fact if it's been through, let's say, Sotheby's or Christie's, that meant Christie's and Sotheby's, just from a diligence perspective, did their diligence in the art because the last thing they want to do is auction off a piece of art that's fraudulent. So they do a a lot of research on the piece. So if it's been through, even if it's prior and old, as you would note dated, it's nice to have the fact that it's been through a major auction, which generally most major pieces are. Now, Mm -hmm. in addition, (laughs) making us really anal and probably a total pain for the borrower, we look, there's two major databases of art pricing, and we independently of the appraiser go through those ourselves like you would on a piece of real estate and say, okay, as a painting like this by this artist sold at any time recently, we look at that. And then other kinds of underwriting without getting too detailed, but this separates us from others. We want what's called a permanent export certificate if it's come out of the country of origin, let's say Italy, because, and not everybody agrees with us on that, if there were to be a default, God forbid, we want the ability to sell that art anywhere in the world, given the fact that there's a vibrant market in China, Hong Kong, Abu Dhabi, London, and the US, and art moves around the world like gold. It moves with currency fluctuations. So we want that flexibility to do that. So that's the collateral. And third is structure. We generally get the loans are recourse. You can relate to that. I regard personal guarantees as a nice to have, but collecting on a personal guarantee is always a month of Sundays to actually go do it. So we look at it as a motivator for the borrower just to ensure that they pay off the loan when we we want them to. Right. So structure counts 
And we get a lot of attestations, affidavits, if you will, from the borrowers saying they know, know of no known issues on the art and they own the piece free and clear. We just recently got a opinion of counsel in Italy, since we have some Italian borrowers of size, where if you give us that affidavit and you were not truthful on it, not only is it it's a civil crime, it is also criminal, adding a little more teeth mm-hmm. to that affidavit in Italy and in Spain, since we have borrowers in both places. So I don't ramble forever. I would say the last thing, which is true, I would argue, for just about any kind of underwriting is sweat the details. I presume most of your borrowers, or if you have some in Italy and Spain, the uh, collateral is domiciled here in the United States. Well, it's interesting you should ask us about that. We keep probably 90% of the art in art warehouses in the U.S. And the art warehouses we use, again, since we use Chubb as the master insurer for us, we only use warehouses that Chubb has given their seal of good housekeeping to. Now, we have also, with three legal opinions to back it up, we also will store art in London, which is sort of a crude equivalent to a UCC one with a deed of pledge, which is quite complicated. And you have, with the art warehouse, a different kind of agreement, carefully wrought, that's what's called a specialized bailment agreement with the art warehouse to protect our privity to the collateral. So at the moment, we'll keep it in London or the U.S. Got it. So let's talk about how you how you price these loans to these borrowers, because obviously, as you mentioned, you don't want to be in the trade for five years. You don't want to be, you know, at that point, your you're equity, not debt. So you're providing, in essence, you know, working capital to these uh, gallerists slash dealers. So how do you price go about pricing the product to these borrowers? Great question. Couple points on that. One thing for anybody that's listening. Wild and crazy though it may sound, I write a fair amount of stuff, having been doing diligence on all manner of things for years and years and years. On Shinnecock, that's S-H-I-N-N-E-C-O-C-K dot com, there are approximately nine articles we've written, which details the kinds of diligence that I think anybody should do with any manager, with any category of investing. There's 300 questions that we delineate in those one of those articles. So how do we price it? What the market will bear? And typically, what does that mean? It means that the borrower generally pays somewhere between 9.5% and 13%. However, we do it in an unusual way, Barry. We ask the borrower to prepay the interest for the term of the loan. So what does that mean? It means that we deduct the interest payment from the loan proceeds. Pretty interesting as a way to price it. And occasionally, 
we are able to negotiate a profit participation over and above the interest rate so such that if the art sells, it's the delta between the purchase price by the owner and the sales price, our investors will get 7.5% of that delta. Now, that usually is for three years. And if the art always worried about maybe, <laughs> I know this is being cynical, but what if the owner of the art two and a half years into it says, oh, you know, I've got a buyer, but I think I'll just outweigh those boys <laughs> at Shinnecock. We say at the end of three years, we'll reappraise the art. And if a piece of art has not sold, we will nominate the appraised price as the sales price and do the profit calculation off of that. So there's a, it's, for, it's, it's a forced uh, put, so to speak, to the, uh, to you the got gallerist. It. Got it. Now, one thing that gets into pricing and, and just risk controls, I would say to anybody listening, beware the Stockholm syndrome. You know, that, what is that? You know, it's the famous analogy of where the hostage begins to relate to the hostage taker. And I would say that frequently happens in my experience uh, between whatever the team is working on the deal origination, they become vested in getting the deal done. So what we try to do is separate the people that are working on the deal origination from ultimate approval. We use one of the guys at Shinnecock as <laughs> the, the guy to say no who's not involved in the deal origination, but he, and we use him as a Jiminy Cricket, if you will, to listen to why the deal is the neatest thing since Wheaties, rub it all over your body. And <laughs> you have to convince him that it's good and you've done all your homework. One other, couple other things I would say to just round out this question is, don't be afraid to say, no, to say, notwithstanding all the work that may have been done on a deal, sometimes you just have to say, unfortunately, no, we can't do this. That kind of falls under the category of sometimes the best deals you do are the ones you don't do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well said. How do you look about, how do you think about alignment of interest between you and the borrower? Important, actually. Um, we have helped borrowers sell the underlying art, whether it's an individual collector or a dealer. They may say, gee, can you give us a little help? Or we will volunteer to help them uh, because particularly for dealers, gallerists, they're in the business of selling art. As we've gotten bigger and bigger, our relationships have become much broader. And I'll give you a current situation where a major bank came to me uh, three days ago and said, we have a buyer that's interested, given your position in the art world, in buying a Picasso. And as it turns out, we have lent money against seven Picassos. So we're in the process of talking to that potential buyer. And by the way, probably people listening know this, Picasso, to my amazement, has become very robust in the pricing. And last year, Picasso sold 
even though he's dead, but Picasso artworks sold more than any other artist in the art market. Amazing. Including old masters? Yeah, everything. Wow. It's a single artist in the aggregate more than anybody else. Hmm. Amazing. So you're going to finance that? If if this potential buyer needs some financing, we'll we'll, we'll help, of course, <laughs> since we know the art well. <laughs> very very interesting. So let's let's talk a little bit and pivot to maybe what's the best deal you ever financed in this space? Well, I'll give you two and then one negative one, not in the space, but we financed a Greco statue. Greco, probably most people know him. Very rarely, there's four in the world where he would create a statue as a model for his paintings. We had the good fortune to lend against one of the four Greco statues at a very modest loan-to-value ratio. And as we were putting the loan together, the Chicago Fine Art Museum said, oh, we're doing this Greco exhibition. And we then talked to the curator of the museum because they were very keen on having the statue in the collection. We talked to the curator. She was a delight. Talk your ear off. But uh, we spent an hour on the phone and she detailed all of the research that she had done because she was an expert in getting comfortable that this truly was a Greco statue. So that turned out to be great. Uh, A little broader, probably one of the other best deals I've done when I was restructuring the insurance company, we were the largest owner of post offices in the U.S., Terrific Hmm. trade. Think about it. A government credit, well-positioned, well-built real estate. Gosh, just a wonderful transaction. What could go wrong, right? (laughs) Uh, Very little in those. So those are two. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about your long-term strategy for how you actually going to, how you fund art lending fund going forward as this thing grows and becomes a much larger larger business. Barry, I'm a nut job. About a year ago, I had this crazy ass idea. In specialty lending, you're an expert in that. I had never seen a rated credit agency rated deal. So I said to myself, gee, I wonder if we could get a credit rating on one of these deals that we're doing, particularly we were in the process of putting together a $20 million sidecar. And so we scurried around and then we were tortured for two months by the credit rating agency. And to my delight. Let me interrupt you real quick, real quickly. Did the rating agency have over 300 questions for you to answer? (laughs) They had more, those (laughs) bastards. Uh, Two months of being pummeled. Uh, It was a proctological exam to get a little earthy, and they just gave it an A rating. And we decided, well, that's pretty encouraging. So we asked them to rate our pooled vehicle. And I have yet to see a credit fund, a pooled vehicle that's been rated. And I'm sure they exist, but I don't know of any. 
And our pooled vehicle, to my delight, was rated A+. We just got that. So, long-winded answer to get to your question, which is clearly we should attract a different kind of investor to us, which would be insurance companies and banks. Banks are the largest buyers of, which I think is sort of goofy, uh, unsecured consumer loans from Lending Club and Prosper. Mm -hmm. Well, golly, gee whiz, if we can give, instead of a 4% yield unsecured, we can give them a rated deal that's paying six and a half to seven with a shorter duration, maybe we've bottled some sunshine. So that's, we're in pursuit, which as you know me, Barry, I think about doing any marketing to the chagrin of my partner on alternative Sundays. So I have to stir myself and dig out some of these potential investors because it will lower the amount that we have to credit to the investor, which in turn will mean we can lower the cost to the borrower, which will mean we will be guerrilla competitive with anybody. Almost bank competitive. I think so. I hope so. And you only only employ a modest amount of leverage in the fund. Is that correct? Yes. And I get duly chastised by Wall chastised by Wall Street type saying, Alan, again, and they may be right, you're so dumb. You first of all, they say you should want people to default because you'll make more money, but this is not a loan to own strategy. Second, um, we did get to make our lives a little easier in managing the pooled vehicle. <clears throat> we were able to secure with some noteworthy help <laughs> a <laughs> credit line, whereby I would say it's half a turn of leverage. Some would consider it only a third of a turn, where for every dollar of equity in the fund, we can have up to 50 cents of debt. Now, it's a revolving line of credit, so it gives us the ability when we see a mouth-wateringly attractive deal, we can, without bothering any investor, we can simply take down the loan. We got that, I think, last summer, and that's uh, made our lives a little bit simpler. Great. Uh, let's pivot to uh, what most finance company lenders, what keeps them up at night is uh, regulatory risk. And how do you kind of assess and view regulatory risk? Um, with great concern and care, since Shinnecock has yet to be sued in its 32 years, And having grown up in the regulated side of the business, to my knowledge, we are the only art lender that went through the hassle of becoming a regulated and licensed lender. We have a California lender's license, which requires us to post a fidelity bond and, of course, go through, as the Republic of California does, endless questions from them. So we secured that. And recently, as part of some other work that we're doing, we did a 50-state analysis, holy smokies, was that a lot of work, of saying what disclosure, whether it's a commercial loan or a consumer loan in the art space, you would need to provide to the 
investor and borrower, and two, what states have maybe sort of bizarre requirements. And out of the 50 states, we can do a proper licensed business in about 45. There are five states that just, you know, you have to have, in theory, a physical presence in that state. Our office is in Los Angeles, and we're not going to just casually open offices in various states. Correct. And I presume most of your borrowers, especially the gallerists and dealers, have got to be in the major states, you know, New York, Florida, Texas, California. True. Good insight. Great insight. You know, um, and you're exporting California law, so you can charge the interest rates you want to charge. Yes. So at a 50,000 foot level, Alan, since you've been around for so long. <laughs> Don't rub it in. <laughs> and deal with so many, uh, see so many specialty or alternative credit uh, strategies and opportunities. What do you see as the uh, major headwinds facing specialty finance lenders and alternative credit providers? Well, you probably see the same I, I thing given your wide ranging participation in the business. It's when there's too much capital chasing too few deals. And, and if I were to bifurcate the market, I would say in the specialty finance area, loans 25 million or higher, credit funds, the big credit funds, which have sopped up so much capital, are having a hard time deploying the capital, which makes them more willing to lighten the load on the covenants that they demand of their borrowers. And I think that's a not trivial risk to them. Either it's cash drag for those funds, which we've seen, and or, you know, they'll put on a loan and then it, it takes time. It'll take three or four years for the problems to emerge. So I expect to see more problems there. Now, in loans, $25 million and less, you know, homeo economicus, it's a lot more work. So there's fewer players in that, those size deals, I believe. And therefore, while it's a lot more work, I think you can have a safer construct. That makes sense, especially uh, <clears throat> the smaller credit funds focusing under $25 million. There's a lot more moving parts. Therefore, mm -hmm. you got to be a lot tighter. But the larger, my experience, or at least my observation, the larger credit funds doing larger deals, they're, you know, kind of banking on, you know, size bailing them out uh, a lot of times, especially if they're doing cash flow type deals. Well, you have more experience than damn near anybody I know. So that's <laughs> a very worthwhile comment. <laughs> well, let's kind of wrap up by talking about some personal things, kind of. Uh, uh oh. Uh, first off, where did the name Shinnecock come from? You know, people kid me about it. They say, Snyder, you're living in Los Angeles and you have a name that's an East Coast name from Long Island. I had a house when I worked on Wall Street on Shinnecock Bay. I miss it dearly. Hmm. And so I figured, yeah, you know, it's a pretty fun name. So I picked it up. Now, the humor of that name is there's an Indian tribe called the Shinnecock Indians. And about every three or four years, I get a nasty gram for them saying, darn it, 
It's our name. We're the Indian tribe where it came from, and you own the URL. You should just give it to us. And I say them as politely as I can muster. I would love to. So get gambling, and then you can buy it from us. <laughs> so that's, that's where. <laughs> Terrific. So you're five years old. What did you dream of becoming? Boy, you talk about prosaic. Maybe it's because I grew up out on the East Coast, a fisherman. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I presume you're an active fisherman? I am. Not so much anymore. It's too hard in California. Well, it's not hard. I just don't do it as much these days, but I love fishing. Yes. <laughs> and so let's say you stumble upon $10 million. What do you do? Thank the good Lord. <laughs> and then ask for my wire instructions perfect uh, i have it tattooed to my fanny <laughs> <laughs> what's the last piece of advice you gave someone well if you don't mind i'll give two sure let me think for a minute um uh, the last advice this was uh, a couple of weeks ago investor of some significant means that Alan, I want to give you a bunch more money and I want to give you all my money and I want it all put in art lending. And I said, absolutely not. Diversification is my mantra. And I said, that makes no sense. You want to be diversified across different asset categories. And then I guess the next one I've seen more honored in the breach than actually done, I would suggest to any investor, hopefully not too presumptuously, whomever you entrust your money to, make sure that they evidence a duty of care for investors. And if they talk about disparagingly their investors, they were able to cut a better deal and do that kind of stuff, run. I think you want people that really are respectful of the fact that somebody is entrusting their money to you, and you must treat it with the respect that it deserves. Advice well said. One last uh, question before we wrap up here, Alan, and that is, who inspires you and why? Hmm. Well... She's been in the news recently, and I have always find her fascinating. Maya Angelou, she's going to be on the quarter. And what do I take away from her? This famous poet, she never gave up. And despite all the things thrown against her in her life, that would be one. Here's a weird one. Temple Grandin. <laughs> my, my wife works and helps the Semmel Institute, which is on uh, mental disorders. Temple Grandin was an autistic woman on the spectrum, and she was able to rise above that. And boy, bless her heart, she created new ways to humanely treat animals in ways that are very interesting. And then, since we're in a political season, it seems like endlessly, and, and now this will be a shocker, 
I think he's not my kind of guy for many reasons, but I say with respect, Mike Pence, oh my goodness, was a profile in courage. He stood up against enormous pressure from Trump and Trump allies and said, no, we're not going to try to overturn the election. And that had to, and as a result, it's hurt his political career materially, I believe. Uh, I don't agree with him on very many things, but in the John Kennedy thing, that I think qualifies as a profile in courage. Well said. Well said. Well, I want to uh, thank my guest, Deal Junkie, today, Alan <laughs> Snyder from Shinnecock Partners. This has been Under the Term Sheets. Thank you for listening. And remember, no deal will get done before it's time. Thanks, Alan. Thank you so much. A pleasure. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.